I'm back in the saddle again. <laughs> yep. And uh, it has been a glorious almost four months, and I want to thank the church for giving me the break. I want to thank the preachers, teachers, and evangelists who shared the pulpit for coming up here and using their gifts to equip the saints. And I'm a little nervous to be back. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, God's got this, you know? Yeah. And uh, normally, I write a full manuscript, you know, I do a resources page, and uh, in preparing for this sermon specifically, I wanted to challenge myself, I was telling Rob, I wanted to challenge myself as I preached to the youth over the last three, four months uh, on Family Sunday, I preached from an outline, and I wanted to challenge myself and preach from an outline this morning. So this is going to determine how often I use an outline to preach to the adults versus how often I use a manuscript. And uh, I'm just going to stop now and I'm going to pray that God would just have his way this morning. Amen? Amen. All right. Father, I'm reminded of the lyrics of a wonderful praise and worship song. And this morning, Lord, my heart is to pray those words over this congregation. Rushing wind blow through this temple. Blowing out the dust in me and in us. Come and breathe your breath upon us. We've been born again. Amen. Holy Spirit, I surrender. Take me where you want to go. Sanctify and change us, Lord. Have your way this morning. We bend our knee to your will, Father. We open our hearts and our mind to your word, Lord. We ask that your spirit would convict us, God. That if a rebuke is necessary, Lord, that the rebuke would come from you. That your word would be a source of food spiritually that we would leave encouraged and inspired to take on the day. God, it is true that we can do nothing apart from you. And so we turn our full attention to you. We acknowledge Jesus as Lord in this family. We recognize that he is our Savior and that apart from him we would be lost. And we look forward to the day when he will return in glory and honor the saints. But Father, in the interim, we pray that you would use this church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that this city and this state and this nation and the world can be changed. It can be transferred from darkness into light. And only you, Father, have the authority to do that. So God, we ask that you would do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're getting ready to launch a series through the parables. The parables of Jesus. Yeah, I'm excited, right? 
F.F. Bruce wrote a book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. <laughs> the culture today would have you believe that Jesus is soft. Let me tell you, you are not the Lord of all things created if you are soft. <laughs> oh, he's grace, gracious. And he's patient and he's merciful and he's loving and he's long-suffering and he's steadfast. But he is also righteous and just. And all of his decisions are righteous and just. And the parables, they have a lot to say about the kingdom of God. And so I'm not even sure we can just dive into a sermon series on the parables before assessing some questions for ourselves. Question number one, who did Jesus believe that he was? Let's ask the question this morning, who did Jesus believe that he was? Not what does the world say? we're not even ready to answer the question, who do you say that I am? We need to begin with the question, who did Jesus believe that he was? And this answer that we come to is going to have a drastic effect on our studies moving forward. If Jesus is a liar... If Jesus is a lunatic, then what's the point of studying the parables? There is no point. I don't want to sit under the tutelage of a liar or a lunatic. Do you? No. Okay. <laughs> so if Jesus isn't who he says he is, and he doesn't believe actually that he is who he is, we shouldn't even open the word and look at what it is that he has to say. So if Jesus is a liar or a lunatic, whoosh, parables are off the table. What if he's a legend? What if he actually never existed? Studying the parables would be like reading Greek mythology. Be sure it would be fun. But would it have an effect on my heart and on my mind and on my entire being is the question. So if Jesus is just a legend, whoosh, parables are off the table. But if Jesus is Lord, yes. if Jesus is Lord, then not only the parables are worth studying, but every word in the Gospels, every word in the Epistles, and every word in the Hebrew Scriptures. Amen? Yeah. And so we're here to answer the question this morning, what did Jesus believe that he was? Who did Jesus believe that he was? Sorry, not what. Now to answer this question properly, we need to be familiar with a couple of terms, terms that are near and dear to our hearts in this church, but there are new people, praise God, in the congregation, and we want to bring you in on what God is doing here, 
We don't want to leave no man, no woman, no child behind. We talk about family here, and the family dynamic leaves no room for putting people in the back. (laughs) All right? You are welcome at the table in this body. You can challenge anything that is said. You can question anything that is said. You can seek clarity. You can disagree with me. I've changed my mind on a whole bunch of things since I've been saved, and I'm going to change my mind on more. So if you walk out of here today going, oh man, that must be true because the pastor said it. Don't go out there and start preaching that way. Well, my pastor said it because you're going to be stuck when God takes me deeper and he reveals more of himself to me and I change my position. Y'all need to think critically for yourself no different than I need to think critically for myself. And that's why there's a seat at the table for everyone. Exercise your voice. If you have a question, we ain't scared around here. We're totally comfortable saying, I don't know, but I can find out. All right, that's right. Oh, that's not my gift, but this person's gifted in that capacity. Let's go talk to them, right? That's how this family rolls, okay? So some terms that are near and dear to our heart. Exegesis. If you were to do a quick Google search on the word exegesis, this is what popped up on my phone this morning. A critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially in connection to Scripture. And this comes from the Oxford Dictionary. Okay? If you look at this little etymological graft on the bottom here, you'll see that X is out of. Hegastathenia, I think, is how the Greek is pronounced there, to guide or lead. And you can see that over time we got to our word exegetical from this interpretation of the term. And it moved in English to the exegesis. The definition is important. A critical explanation or interpretation of a text. Does this say just come to the text nonchalantly? No, it says critically. Okay? If you got to come critically, then that means there's probably a proper way to do things. And if there's a proper way to do things, you know what that implies? There's an improper way to do things. Eisegesis. It's not always that reader response is a bad thing, but we want to know what the author intended to say around here. That takes us to our next important word, hermeneutics. Everybody saying herm who? (laughs) Herman who? (laughs) Check it out. A branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation especially of the Bible or literary texts, okay? Hermeneutics. You can see down here that the interpretation definition finds its way all the way back into history and is carried forward to modern times. But these are like 
dictionary definitions and how many of us have found that dictionary definitions aren't always the most practical when trying to learn or ascertain something. So let's see if we can get a practical definition of these terms. Exegesis versus hermeneutics. You don't want to have one without the other. Who pays for the pay-per-view UFC fight if there's only one man or woman standing in the ring? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Who goes to the arena to watch the Super Bowl play when only one team steps out on the field? Not me. <laughs> Exegesis versus hermeneutics. Daryl Bach says that exegesis recognizes that knowing about the whole helps us to better understand the particulars. That's a very practical definition of the word exegesis. Let's think about this out loud for a little bit, saints. If I know about the whole meta-narrative in the Gospel of Mark, is it going to help me to understand the parables in Mark better? Yeah. What about for... Matthew and Luke, if I know the Gospels in their entirety, the meta narrative of Matthew and Luke, and I read them alongside of Mark and Ma uh, uh, if I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke alongside of one another, is it going to help me to understand not just each author, their original audience, and what they intend, but the entire story of God's glory in Jesus' life and ministry? Is the answer yes? So, recognizing that exegesis knows about the whole brings a better, deeper understanding about the particulars, it's true. If I know the meta-narrative of, of the epistles and the gospels, am I going to better understand God's will for my life? Yeah. And if I have a background understanding in the text of the Hebrew scriptures, is it going to inform my understanding of what the first century Jews who were writing the New Testament actually meant when they spoke? So exegesis recognizes that knowing about the whole helps us to better understand the particulars. Hermeneutics recognizes that we, we are separated from the biblical audience by culture and customs. Okay, this comes from a book called Grasping God's Word. J. Daniel Hayes and, uh, uh, or yeah, Duval and Hayes, the scholars who wrote the book, this is what they say. Hermeneutics recognizes that we are separated from the biblical audience by culture and customs, language, situations, geography, etc. Therefore, it asks, how do we move from the world of the biblical audience to the world of today? Notice the order here. We must first begin in the world of the biblical audience if we, if we desire to understand the text in our context. Okay? So these are practical definitions of these $20 theological words. You probably hear them thrown around a lot and go, I have no idea what they mean. Well, now you're culpable. All right? Nobody's without excuse. Thank you. Thank you. So... Why do I bring these things up? Well, because we can't properly answer the question that we asked if we don't understand these things need to be placed, they have, need to have a high value in our approach to this right here. Okay? These things need to have a high value, a high priority when we approach the word of God. 
period. You're not going to come in here, get a feel-good sermon, and leave. <laughs> you're not going to come in here and, be, and you're not going to leave going, <laughs> I knew everything <laughs> that was presented. I enjoyed everything that was presented. You <laughs> know. You're going to be challenged. Right? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. When Peter preached at Pentecost, the men who were present were cut to the heart. And our hope is that every morning when we open up the word of God in this building, we too will be cut to the heart. So we're trying to answer the question, who did Jesus believe that he was? All right? Now, to properly answer this question, we need to look at two things. Everybody's going, ah, how am I supposed to remember all this stuff? Well, I'll tell you what. You take that up with God when you stand before him at the great white throne of judgment, okay? Don't take it up with me. You have your entire life so that you can study you have a computer in your pocket that gives you access to more information than any generation before has had access to. And so when you ask yourself, how am I supposed to remember all this stuff? That's my answer. Take it up with God at the great white throne of judgment. He created you with the capacity to remember. He created you with the capacity to recall. And his word is very clear on what God thinks about the lazy individual. So don't be lazy. Pick up the tools and use them. Amen? Amen. All right. So to properly answer this question, we've got to ask two questions. What did Jesus say? And what did Jesus do? Because what he said and what he did are going to give us the evidence that we're going to need to properly answer the question, what, who did Jesus believe that he was? All right? You can't just ask what Jesus said, and you can't just ask what Jesus did, okay? If I were found out to be cheating on my wife, gambling away all of the money of the church, and... Uh, you know, doing drugs, <laughs> would you guys continue to show up and hear what it was that I had to say every week? No. <laughs> so it's not just about what I say, it's about what I do. And are you going to care what I do if I don't take the time to say things to you in connection to getting to know you and build relationship with you? No. I'm going to have very little impact if there's no relationship, okay? The life and ministry of Jesus was built around the function of relationship. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Who did Jesus believe that he was? We got three case studies that we're going to pick apart this morning, Okay? Case study one, Mark. Case study two, Matthew. Case study three, Luke. These are the synoptic gospels. Usually, and if you go back and watch James Prim's minute, uh, uh, sermon on the Trinity, you're going to find that lots of people like to say that the idea that Jesus was God developed over time. And that you can't prove that. 
Jesus believed that he was God or that even Jesus thought he was God from the synoptics. It's a later church development. Let's find out. Let's, 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 let's be a text-driven people. And let's just, let's find out. So, case study number one. Mark, chapter two, verse one through 12. I like to call this portion of the gospels when the Pharisees have good theology. Are you aware that the Pharisees had good theology? Are you aware that they knew their Bible well? Are you aware that they dedicated their lives to studying the scriptures? And I know you're probably thinking, but Jesus told them, you search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures there's life, but the scriptures testify of me. Do you know everything there is to know about the text of the scripture? No. But would you consider yourself a faithful follower of God? Yes. Ah, you're in good company when the Pharisees have good theology. Let's read this portion of the text. Now, I'm going to read it off the screen because I, I might stop and give my commentary on the verses, or I might read through it and then give my commentary after. Again, I'm preaching from an outline, so we're going to see how this goes, okay? Mark chapter 2, correct. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. Did it say in the case study 2? Okay, so that's a typo. I'm human. Yeah, 1 through 12. So this is, I trans. I did what, if you're an accountant, you, you, this is a slider. This is a slider error right here. <laughs> I mixed my numbers up. It's Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Interesting. Wasn't Jesus from Nazareth? Okay. We want to take our time when we look at the word of God, amen? Okay. So when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed, it was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door while he was preaching God's word to them. Let's just pause here. Mark chapter 1 verse 38. First one to get there. Stand up and read it as loud as you can. Mark chapter 1 verse 38. Thank you, Nathan. Jesus is doing what he came to do. Okay? If you ever have the question, what did Jesus come to earth to do? Mark chapter 1 verse 38 is a great place to start finding your answer. It's not the answer in its entirety, but it is a major foundation in the answer nonetheless. Christ is doing in verse 1 and 2 what he came to do. Let's go to the next slide. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. So you can imagine 
two long sticks probably with a guy on each side and a paralyzed man. We don't know if he's a paraplegic or a quadriplegic, but he's on the mat. They couldn't bring him to see Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Can you imagine if I was preaching to you right now and just like someone was banging on the roof and then crunching through the ceiling? Would you be distracted? So it's actually happening while Jesus is teaching. And homie just keeps rolling through the teaching. <laughs> We're so spoiled in, the first, in, in, in this first world American culture that we live in, that if a child is crying, we think maybe I won't come back to that church until they get a nursery. <laughs> I'll tell you what, volunteer to get your butt in the nursery. <laughs> we'll put a speaker in there so as you minister to the babies, the word can minister to you. Because these people were willing to hear the roof being torn off literally while Jesus was preaching. All right? So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. So I'm telling you guys, man, when the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to the church at Galatia, it was just like, whoa. <laughs> Interruption, distraction. Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> you know how I know Jesus isn't soft? You know how I know Jesus isn't soft? Because he said this. <laughs> my child, in the ESV it says, son, your sins are are forgiven. Jesus meant to be surprising and shocking in this interaction. It's almost if he's like, oh, you want to interrupt my sermon? I'll one-up you. <laughs> you want to throw the gauntlet down on Jesus? How about that? <laughs> Cash me outside, bro. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> he's not distracted. My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law, these would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the teachers of religious law. The Sadducees function in the role of priests in the temple. The Sanhedrin is composed of equal parts Pharisees and equal parts Sadducees so that when they get deadlocked in a decision like the Republicans and the Democrats, Rome gets to come in and make the final decision. Rome was smart when they set up the Sanhedrin. They knew that these parties could not get along, so they pitted them against each other so they would be left out of no critical decision. The Pharisees specialize in the law. There was two schools of Pharisees in the first century. Prior to Jesus' life, you can read the wisdom of Ben Sirach. It's like the handbook of the Pharisaic schools. There is the school of Hillel, Gamaliel's grandfather, and there is the school of Shemei. Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel. Hillel was the liberal Pharisees. So Paul was a liberal Pharisee. 
Can you imagine if he would have been of the sect of Shemei? My God! (laughs) And there, Paul's people are in the midst of the crowd, the ones who specialize in studying the law, i.e. Torah, okay, not just the 613 commands, but the Pentateuch, specifically, the prophets, specifically, the wisdom literature, specifically. (laughs) They thought, what is he saying? This is what? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. What's the question we're trying to answer today? Who does Jesus think that he was? is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins and they're saying this to themselves. They're thinking it in their minds. They're believing it in their hearts. The scribes, the Pharisees, they understood this statement as Jesus' attempt to usurp Yahweh. Where would they get the idea that only God can forgive sins? Somebody Flip in your Bible to Psalm 32, chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 32, I want you to look at verse 1 and 2, and verse 5. When you get there, stand up, but don't read it yet. Somebody turn to Micah chapter 7, verse 19 through 20. When you get there, stand up, but don't read it yet. I need two readers. Come on, we're doing this interactively as a family today, yo. You didn't show up to hear the talking head. We're participating What do you got, Rob? Uh, I got Psalms 32, 1 and 2. And verse 5. Okay, so Gabby, you'll take Micah 7, 19 through 20. Just read verse 1 and 2 for us real quick. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Okay, read verse 5 for us, please. There you go. So when the Pharisees are saying, only God can forgive sins, their minds are probably immediately drawn to the wisdom literature. Probably specifically, Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2, and verse 5. Can you imagine this in the Hebrew? I acknowledge my sin to you, Adonai Elohim, and I did not cover my iniquities, my transgressions. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh or to Adonai Elohim, and you, Yahweh or Adonai Elohim, forgave the iniquity of my sin. So when the Pharisees are are, are conflicted in their hearts about what Jesus says, only God can forgive sin, they're standing on the word, amen? Amen. Amen. Micah 7, 19 through 20. It's the last prophet before the close of the canon, right? No. That's Malachi. You got it, Gabby? Micah 7, 19 and 20. Right after Amos, right? After Jonah.
Who will tread out our iniquities? Well, if it's not clear in verse 19, just look at 20. (laughs) The one who showed faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. There's no confusion in the heart of the Pharisees when it comes to who has the authority and the ability to forgive sins. And you may say, ah, but Matt, the Levites, they stood in the place of mediation before man and God. And when the sacrifices were complete, the people's sin was covered. And I would say, you're right. Jesus is not from the line of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah, so he's got no right in the first century Jew's mind to function as a priest because he's not of the tribe of Levi. Not to mention that in the 400 years between the close of the Old Testament canon and the opening of the New Testament canon, you had the Hasmonean Revolt where they pretty much moved out all the steadfast Levitical priests and they moved in all of the people who were willing to uh, tread the line and, and, and follow the, the, the Greek paganism. Okay? And so that's why the Essenes existed in the first century. That's why the Qumran sect existed in the first century because they did not acknowledge that the high priest who stood and mediated the sacrifices actually deserved to be there. And all of this is vital. It's vital for our understanding because then the people would say, not only is he not a Levite, but he's definitely not part of this uh, sect of priests that has replaced the Levites during the Hasmonean revolt. He's of the tribe of Judah. So they would be disgusted with his statement. Okay? Yeah. We got to get in their world before we get to ours. Okay? Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. The irony of Mark... They don't think that he has the ability to forgive sins and he demonstrates omniscience in their presence. He knows what they're thinking, he knows what they're feeling, and he's about to call them on it, y'all. I'm pretty sure in the wisdom literature it says that God knows our words before we even speak them. Yahweh is all over this. He's in it. And if you're a first century Jew or someone who cares about exegesis and hermeneutics, you're going to see it too. What's the question we're trying to answer today? Oh, who did Jesus believe that he was? Why do you question this in your hearts? Can you imagine being called on the carpet for what you're thinking? God, no. God, no. Especially when you're driving. Oh, yeah, Lord help us. Here comes the trick question. Here comes the trick question. This is how wise of a rabbi Jesus is. Is is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? You know why this is a trick question? It's impossible for man to do either of these. It's only possible for God to do both of these. So he's got them right here. Hey, which is easier, you who study the law? If I'm a liar or a lunatic or a legend, then this won't happen. 
It can't happen. But if I am who I say I am, I'm going to show you something you've never seen. What's easier? Let's go to the next slide. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man, you're going to find this term in each of our case studies today. That's a breadcrumb for your homework this week. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up. <laughs> no atrophy in the muscles anymore. Didn't have to learn to walk. Supernaturally given the ability to do something he had never ever done in his life before as far as we know. The stunned onlookers. They were amazed. And this act caused them to worship God. You think those that had good theology were praising God? Before you answer that, think about what the text says. We've never seen anything like this before. Look, check it out. We're trying to answer the question, who does Jesus believe that he is? He asks the trick question that nobody wants to answer because he knows that no man can accomplish either the forgiveness of the sins or the raising of the paralytic to walk. And he knows that only God can. And so here's, here's the beautiful thing. One scholar notes that Jesus did the miracle which they could see so that they might know that he had done the other which they could not see or verify. Who does Jesus believe that he is? You think that question was arbitrary in his mind? Which is easier? No. Not at all. He knew exactly what he was doing. Case study number two. Case study number two. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. I like to title this, and I stole this. I steal everything that I preach. Nothing is original that you get from me. Let's just be clear. When I'm done, I'll give you my reference resource list, and you can go hear from the guys who are way smarter than me. Okay? Again, Professor Bach says, we should ask this question when reading this section of the text, who gets to be Lord of the Lord's Day? Who gets to be Lord of the Lord's Day? That's the question you ought to ask when you come to this section of the text. So, I've titled this as I titled the last one, when the Pharisees have theology, this is who gets to be Lord of the Lord's Day. All right, let's read through this section of the text. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. Remember, there's no fences. People's yards were separated by boundary markers. So where one field ended, another began, and there was no way, unless there was an already blazed path, to walk. Okay? I would believe that there would be paths to walk because these fields have been established for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. These boundary markers go all the way back to the conquest 
When the nations are divided up and they're given their land and they begin to farm and take dominion over the promised land. Amen? Now there's been ups and downs all through that. But Jesus is walking with his disciples while the people have been established for yet again quite some time. Okay? Walking through the grain fields on what day? Oh, man. Oh, man. And his disciples were hungry. I hate being hungry. You know what I hate worse than being hungry? I hate when my wife is hungry. Because she gets hangry. And I'm her number one victim when she's hangry. So I don't like being hungry, but I like it even less when she's hungry. All right? You think there were any drama queens? My wife is not a drama queen, by the way. But do you think there were any drama queens in the 12? Ah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some of the Pharisees saw them do it, and they protested. Look at your disciples. You know why they're talking to Jesus? Because they recognize Jesus as a rabbi. And in the first century, the rabbi is responsible for his disciples. So again, the Pharisees are acknowledging Jesus' authority as a teacher, whether they like it or not, because he has disciples, and they recognize he has followers, and his gang is growing, and they can't do anything about it. So instead of addressing the disciples, the culture in that time requires them to speak to Jesus. That's an Recognition of his authority as a teacher. So they protested to Jesus. Look at your disciples. They're breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Now this is a very wise rule because the law does forbid people from working on the Sabbath, but work has to be defined and so there's like 39 principles in, at this time that have been authored that describe and define what work is so you can't do it. But even before those 39 were added, harvesting is in the Torah and it's not allowed on the Sabbath. However, <laughs> you got to ask the question, how do you define harvesting? You see, Jesus is about to employ what's called a halakhic argument where he's going to take two laws that seem to contradict each other and he's going to form an argument. You know why there is the halakhic arguments? Because there's two schools of the Pharisees and they have differences of how you interpret the law. So when someone in modern America who's reading the King James Bible tells you that there's only one translation and there's only one interpretation, you remind them that when Jesus was alive, even he employed halakhic arguments. Because there was no such thing as a monolithic interpretation of the law. This is why Rabbi can be praised for her lying in the book of Hebrews. Okay? But the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not lie. <laughs> Man, you got to study this stuff out. You know? You got to study this stuff out. If my wife is in the other room and someone kicks my door in and has a gun and they're gonna rob my house and I'm like, oh, the cops! And he looks and I'm, bam! <laughs> Was it bad that I lied to him? 
for the sake of protecting my wife. It was for the greater good. <laughs> isn't, that what Rabbi, isn't that what Rahab did with the spies? You see how there can be interpretation even on the Ten Commandments? What about do no work on the Sabbath, but then the priests, when it comes to the Sabbath, they have to do double the work in the temple because that's in the law too. Oh, but wait. The law says you can't work on the Sabbath. And then the priests are required to do double the standard work on, 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 on the Sabbath day? <laughs> you see why there's discussion over interpreting the law? And you see why they're smart in the, using the word harvesting? Because it matters how you define it. Is it the picking with the sickle and the bringing over to the threshing floor and the running it under the trampling weight and then the gathering of the flour which is actually able to eat and the binding of the sheaves and taking it home? Is that what the law is probably not permitting? <laughs> or is it the simple, man, I'm hungry I wish the law would allow me to eat this. I'm about to die of starvation. But since it's a Sabbath, I hope I can hold out till the next day. No, the law was there to bring life. <laughs> to establish quality of life. Not to make life difficult. But it was these fences that they put around the law so that you couldn't even get close to breaking it that made life burdensome. This is why Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because he wasn't like the Pharisees. And even the people in the beginning of Mark's gospel said, who is this man who teaches with what? A new type of authority. So we're getting into it now. Hermeneutics. Jesus said to them, haven't you read the scriptures? What David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of the bread that, that only the priests are allowed to eat. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Go back and read the Old Testament this week and notice that the authors never paint David in a negative light for doing this. By the way, he lies to the priest about the mission that he's on to get the food. <laughs> But do you know why they don't ever paint him in a bad light for doing this? A, because he was on mission from God because he was the anointed king who had to flee or Saul would have killed him. And B, because it's an honor and shame culture. And by the time the text of the Old Testament was written, it had far passed David's life and they weren't gonna shame him in the text for doing something that kept him alive while he was on the run. It's a very different world that the Middle East lives in when they write from an honor-shame foundation and they're not so worried about guilt and innocence or sometimes they prioritize fear and power over guilt and innocence. So this is a part of exegesis and hermeneutics as well. What is the culture that produced the text actually attempting to communicate? Does Jesus say anything about David in a negative light? And if you'll notice in the Old Testament, the priest goes in on David's behalf, but Jesus says David goes in. So David, Jesus is getting creative with the storytelling too. You ever heard of a Mishnah? A retelling of a story that's found in the text? Yeah. And I messed that word up. It's not a Mishnah. It's, 
If it comes back to me, I'll, I'll, I'll correct myself, but I want to make sure for the people on YouTube that they don't use the wrong term. I can't remember it right now. Maybe this is why a manuscript is important. <laughs> he went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? You see these halakhic arguments? He's taking what the law says and what people do, and what the law says and what people do, and how God has blessed it and ordained it, and he's using them against them as they're trying to attack his disciples. Can you see that? Is it coming to life in your mind? I tell you there is one here who is even greater than the temple, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. Now he's not gonna quote the law, he's gonna quote Hosea, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Everything Jesus is doing is dependent on understanding the Hebrew scriptures. That was their Bible. The New Testament didn't exist at this time. Everything Jesus is standing on is found in and grounded on the Hebrew Bible. For the Son of Man, there it is, there's the title, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now when you read this portion of the text, normally, and this is right by the way, normally preachers or even scholars like William Barclay summarize this whole portion of the text by saying, one, the claims of human needs take precedent over any ritual custom. We would say yes and amen to that. As Jesus just proved. Two, the worship offered to God takes precedent over all the Sabbath rules and regulations. We would say yes and amen to that. Because the priests are working on the Sabbath because worshiping God is more important than abiding by the narrow wooden interpretation of the law. Three, God desires more than ritual sacrifices. He desires kindness. We would say yes and amen based on his quote from Hosea. A perspective, if you're like, I don't know if I'm on board with that, just read 9 through 14, the next few verses, and ask yourself if those three things are true based on what Jesus does when he interacts with the man who has the withered hand, I believe. But to answer the question, who does Jesus believe that he is, we gotta go deeper than just the surface, okay? Remember, we're trying to answer two questions with this case study. Who gets to be Lord of the Lord's Day? And who does Jesus believe that he is? I think they're interconnected. Let's focus on the implicit and the explicit authority claims which Jesus is making here. Explicit claims in verse six and eight, what are they? I need an answer before we move on. Okay, that's one of them. Someone greater than the temple is here. Son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Those are explicit claims in the text. Implicit claims. To go deeper, we're gonna look at prophet, priest, and king categories. Only a prophet could make such statements. Something greater than the temple is here. 
That would qualify as a prophetic oracle. So Jesus is either a true prophet or he's a false prophet. He's either a liar or a lunatic or he's actually the Lord. (laughs) What did John say about Jesus? I must decrease so that he can increase. What was John the Baptist's? Just rhetorical, think about it. What was John the Baptist's view of Jesus? Remember, he stumbled in his understanding when he sent his disciples to Jesus. Are you really the Messiah, the promised one of Israel? And Jesus doesn't even answer them. He just goes on doing miracles. And then he says, you go tell John what you witnessed today. (laughs) So what did John believe about Jesus? You see how when you ask the question, who does Jesus believe that he is, you can begin to find out what other people think about him, what the Pharisees are thinking about him, what the scribes are thinking about him, now what John the Baptist is thinking about him. You see how it all begins to form a clear portrait when it starts to come into focus? So the implicit claim of the prophet, he's either right or he's wrong. If he's wrong, he's got to be stoned. If he's right, He gets to live. Okay? Implicit claim of the priest. Well, Jesus is saying the priests are protected by the temple because the temple is the place where God is co-located, where heaven meets earth, and it's in service to God that they do their labor. I'm not a Levitical priest, but I happen to be greater than the temple, so the thing that protected the priests, yeah, that's going to protect my disciples specifically from your accusation. Do you see how the one greater can protect from the law? King. David was honored and not shamed because he was the king, and the authors of the scripture didn't paint him in a bad light for doing what he did. Jesus doesn't paint him in a bad light for doing what he did. Well, guess what? Jesus is greater than David. No man before occupied the role of prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus says that he's greater. He's greater. He's greater than David. He's greater than the temple. And the prophets who were alive in the birth of Jesus' ministry, who Jesus says is the greatest of the old covenant prophets, that prophet believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the prophesied one of Israel. So we're trying to answer the question, who did Jesus believe that he was? And, you know, like, in the end, he claims that he's greater. And so, in all actuality, I think this is a great portion of the text to put alongside of Mark chapter 2 to say, does this communicate, not to us, but to Jesus' original audience, who he believed that he was? Notice that the Pharisees, they stopped interacting with him at this moment. They could not argue with him any further. Case study number three, Luke chapter 22, verse 14 through 23. And we took communion today, so this should be fresh in your mind. Daniel opened up some really good thoughts for us to consider as he shared his communion message. But let's read through this real quick. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. 
Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. Remember how he demonstrated omniscience in Mark? He's demonstrating omniscience again here. He knows what is coming. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until it's Meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You know how I said Jesus was taking on the role of a prophet in Matthew? By making statements that someone greater than the temple was here? Here he is making a prophetic oracle that something will not transpire until something else happens. After the supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed, wait, did I read the last one? No, you, yeah, go back. Yeah, before, I, I stopped it before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't, yeah, no, no, yeah, that's fine. Did I miss some verses? Oh, okay, open up your real Bible then. Good thing we got those, right? I made a bunch of sliders today. So we need to read 17 through 18. 17 through 19. Luke 22, 17 through 19. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Here's a follow-on prophetic oracle. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do we have 20 up here? Okay. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. Stop. Excuse me? <laughs> Excuse me? Do you know who instituted the Passover commemoration and celebration? It was Yahweh. <laughs> it was God who spoke face to face with Moses. Remember, he speaks differently to Moses than he speaks to Aaron and Miriam. It was Yahweh who instituted the Passover meal and gave the command to Moses to give to the people of Israel. It was Yahweh who in the angel of the Lord stood on the mountain and with the finger of God wrote in the stone the covenantal agreement between Israel and God and it was Moses who took what? Blood and poured it out from the animal in the cutting of their throat, into the basin, they set up the 12 altars to represent the 12 tribes. He sprinkled the altars and the people, and they said, all that God has commanded, we will do. <laughs> Jesus is changing the entire focus here <laughs> of what has been instituted by God. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. The symbolic reference of what is to come, the piercing and the pouring out of his blood, 
will be absolutely clear when the disciples who are not present at the crucifixion hear about what happened and they think about this upper room experience. There will be no way for them to divorce that in their mind. Not only that, they're thinking exactly what I just said a moment ago. The covenant that was made was made with God and Moses and the people of Israel. And he's changing it. The new and better covenant, the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet spoke of this thing happening. Everything that Jesus is saying, everything that Jesus is doing, it's found where? In the Hebrew scriptures, in the Bible of the First Testament people. What's the question we're trying to answer this morning? Yeah. Which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us is a friend. I love the mercy of God. A friend. A friend. Sitting among us is a friend. The man who will betray me, for it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Look. Luke was the last of the three synoptic gospels to be written. Scholars argue if Matthew or Mark wrote their gospel first. I'm a fan of Mark's gospel being the first gospel ever authored, but there are some scholars who argue for Matthew. Okay? But if you turn to Colossians chapter 4, you'll see in the final greeting that Paul speaks of John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the traveling companion of Paul who he split with in the book of Acts. You'll see John Mark's name in the list. And you'll see Dr. Luke, the physician's name in the list. Which tells us that they, not were, only, they were not only known by the church, but that they knew one another because they traveled with Paul. So that means that Luke, before he wrote his gospel, had access to John Mark, who wrote the gospel according to Peter's testimony, in my opinion. And so Luke when he tells us that he went to great lengths, Theophilus, to take the testimony down so that we could be sure, so that we could know for certain what Jesus did in the beginning of his life and ministry. You can be sure that Mark influenced Luke's gospel. Okay? Now, let's think about this second exodus experience that Jesus is announcing in the, in the, at, the, at the Passover meal. Okay? And you might be saying, second Exodus experience. Matt, what are you talking about? Second Exodus. Well, let's look at Mark's gospel real quick before we close out this morning. And let's see if the theme of Mark's gospel helps us answer our question who does Jesus believe that he is? And let's see if it tells us who Mark thought Jesus was. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? Did this idea develop? You gotta be kidding me, right, James? <laughs> In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. <laughs> I love it. 
Isaiah lived four, five hundred years before the life of Jesus. And Mark says, this gospel of Jesus is what Isaiah prophesied. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of who? The Lord. If you look this term up, kudios, in the LXX, you're going to get that same word. If you look it up in the Hebrew Bible, depending on how it's translated, you're going to get either Yahweh or Adonai Elohim. You can't tell me that Mark didn't think Jesus was God. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. Come on, yo. John appeared baptizing, and he baptized Jesus, and that was when Jesus was publicly set apart for the ministry of God. The wilderness. Isn't it interesting that Mark's gospel starts in the wilderness? And we're talking about the second exodus coming and Christ's crucifixion that he's speaking about at the Passover. Where did God meet Moses? In the wilderness. Where did God set Moses apart for the work of making his name great? In the wilderness. Who does Jesus believe that he is? Better yet, who does Mark think that he is? Does Mark agree with John the Baptist? Or does Mark fall in line with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes? Fast forward to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Let's take a quick look at Mark chapter 4. Remember, we're looking at the theme of Mark's gospel. It starts in the wilderness. We're trying to identify the second exodus. And in Mark chapter 4, you've got Jesus calming a storm. He literally rebukes the wind and the waves and tells them, be quiet. <laughs> In the book of Job, isn't it Yahweh having a conversation with Job when he says, where were you and I? <laughs> and he talks about his authority over the wind and the waves and the water. Doesn't the psalmist in Psalm 107 give a specific oracle that is tied to this part of Mark? It was in the mind of the first century Hebrew people, Yahweh, who had power over the water. Oh, before they got to the wilderness and wandered for 40 years after God had met Moses in the wilderness and set him apart for the work of the ministry, what did God do with Israel? He opened the seas and Israel passed through on what? On dry land. Let's keep going. Look at Mark chapter five. Jesus heals the demoniac. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, who does Jesus believe he is and what's the theme of Mark's gospel? Mark chapter five, when Jesus cast the demons out, he cast them into the pigs, the swine run off the hill and they're drowned in the what? In the sea. Why does Mark use that language, the sea, when you could literally stand on one side and, and look from the Decapolis over to Judea or from Judea look across the waters to the Decapolis? It wasn't a sea. It wasn't the ocean. It's more like a lake or a river. But Mark uses the word sea. The first century people would have been like, why is he using the word sea? 
Oh, who drowned in the sea after Israel crossed through the waters? Pharaoh. And Jesus is doing the greater miracle in his ministry by crushing the demons. Can you see it? Can you see it? Let's turn to Mark chapter 6. Oh my goodness. Mark chapter 6. What does he do? He feeds the people. What did God do after they crossed the water and they found themselves in the wilderness? Manna from heaven. Oh my God. I mean literally, oh my God. Yes. The theme of Mark is screaming, Jesus is God. He believes it. I believe it because I'm writing it. All of the disciples believe it. All of the apostles believe it. Every epistle testifies to it. And every prophecy in the Old Testament saw him coming. Come on, people. Who does Jesus believe he is? Have we answered the question? <laughs> Has the text of Scripture answered our question? That's where we find our answer. That's where we go. The theme of Mark, what Jesus does in his halakhic arguments, when he's standing there and he claims that he can forgive sins. Long ago, what does the author of Hebrews say? I love it. I love it. It's the first thing he writes. My God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, didn't I say we had to ask what Jesus said? And you know that Jesus' speaking matches his doing. I mean, we, can, we could sit here all day and I could do this for you. Because my love for the Lord is driven by his spirit that raised him from the dead and now abides in me. Amen? Amen. The same spirit that lives in you. We could sit here, forget the football game. Yo, bring the kids up, let's eat lunch, and let's talk about how Jesus believed that he was God and how we can know it beyond a shadow of a doubt no matter what the world says. You want to argue? Let's go, baby! <laughs> you want to do it at Kaladi's? Great! You want to do it at the bar? Even better, people who aren't saved will hear. You want to get on YouTube and do it? Let's go! Are we ready for the fight, saints? There is a world out there that is hurting and dying and lost. And we have the answer. So we've answered the question, who did Jesus believe that he said he was? Now you have to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Do you believe him or not? There's no standing on the fence in this church. We will love you either way. We will minister to you either way. We will preach to you either way. But there is no sitting on the fence in this church. You are either for God or you are against him. And guess what the good news of the gospel is? At one time I was far off and against him too. But now by the blood of Jesus I've been brought near, baby. And you can be brought near too. 
So just hang out with us a little longer. Come back one more time. We're praying that the Spirit of God will move you from darkness to light. Jesus did it for me. He did it for you. He can do it for them. Amen? That's the goal of today's sermon. Why is it the goal of today's sermon? It's the goal of today's sermon because if we can't properly answer this question, we got no business studying the parables. We got to start with the fundamentals around here. We got to preach the gospel first. And then we can go deeper. Amen? You guys want to go deeper? Come back next week and we'll do our introduction to the parables. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Your word is truth, Lord. Sanctify us in the truth. We want to be spiritually fed, Father. We want to leave here overflowing, ready to share with somebody what we have learned, God, and we can't do that without you. So we're asking God to bless the work of our hands in whatever capacity our hands work. Whatever we do, God, we want to do it to the glory of your name. You came, you took on flesh, you set the perfect example. You fell short in nothing, God. You fulfilled the law and the prophets. You willingly laid your life down, as Daniel so graciously and elegantly said this morning. Nobody made you go. You were killed because of my sin. And yet you proved your power over death. You extended mercy and grace to me. You forgave me. You granted me faith, Father. And now you've called me to so much more. Help us to be a church that makes disciples who make disciples who make disciples. God, we love you because you first loved us and you demonstrated your love in Christ. And we are so grateful this morning for the clarity of your word and how you have decided to reveal yourself. What a beautiful reality that Jesus didn't come on the scene and just say, I'm God, everybody. But he did it in this way. He proved it in word and in deed, and we thank you for that. Thank you for that, being recorded in the text of Scripture and being so accessible to our hands, Lord. Help us to feast on your word daily as we leave here. Bless this body, Father. We want to pursue you. We can't get enough of you, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.